I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, If you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, August 26, 2013. I I think the next two days are going to be um, what we call stinking pot episodes. There's a bunch of stuff I want to get to, haven't got to, and it doesn't fit any particular theological theme. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. Now, like I was trying to describe while our intro music was playing, is that from time to time here at Fighting for the Faith, I don't have a theme, and yet there's particular things that I think are worth commenting on. And uh, and if you've listened to this uh, program for any length of time, then you understand that um, that uh, what I strive to do for every episode of Fighting for the Faith, unless I tell you otherwise, like today, is I try to work together the different segments and the sermon review in such a way that um, that there's a theological topic, a, a singular theme that all of the different pieces are somehow working together to uh, help illustrate uh, via bad theology and then corrective uh, Theology. So it could be something like um, the sufficiency of God's word. It could be something like the doctrine of the Trinity. Although it's been a while since we've done a Trinity, um, uh, you know, program. It could be something like the doctrine of original sin. It could y- y- along. Y- you get what I'm saying. So what I try to do in one way or another, and sometimes the um, the topical butter spreads a little bit thin. <laughs> but that's okay. Generally, you can work out from every episode of Fighting for the Faith, unless I tell you, uh, a general theme for those uh, episodes. From time to time, though, we have what we call potpourri episodes of Fighting for the Faith. And since somebody has told me, although I don't know if it's true or not because I don't speak French, that the uh, the, the, word, the phrase potpourri 
actually means stinking pot. Uh, so from time to time, we have to do a couple of stinking pot episodes of Fighting for the Faith. And so I think today and tomorrow are going to be those types of episodes of Fighting for the Faith because I can't get anything to work together for a major theme. Yeah, you, you get what I'm saying. So um, let's just say that there's stuff that needs to be addressed, commented on, or at least passed along to you. Some good, some bad mostly bad, and, uh, and you can kind of decide for yourself. But don't rack your brain if, uh, for those of you out there who like to try to figure out what the theme is for every episode of Fighting for the Faith, don't, don't waste your time. There is no theme, and if one emerges, it's quite by accident and has nothing to do with me. Um, it might just be some weird um, you know, conglomeration of the Triforce type. Yeah, you, you get what I'm saying. So let's talk about the segments that we're going to try to cover on today's uh, Stinking Pot episode of Fighting for the Faith. Again, this will be kind of like Stinking Pot 1. Tomorrow can probably be Stinking Pot 2. Um, we've got a couple of news stories out there. Um, one regarding a, a um, guy by the name of Efren Taylor um, who is um, <clears throat> being investigated by the SEC regarding a Ponzi scheme that he promoted at two churches. One of them is um, Bishop Eddie Long's, and I use the word bishop very loosely here, Bishop Eddie Long's church, as well as Joel Osteen's Lakewood. And uh, so we'll be passing along that particular ABC News story. And uh, then there's a story that, um, well, let's just put it this way. The... um, the story comes to us via a news source that um, I'm hesitant to point you to uh, because they seem to be more interested in uh, um, racy advertisements than what I would consider good journalism. But they've pointed something out here, and that is is that at Kenneth Copeland's uh, church out there in Texas – uh, in the Fort Worth area, you know, Kenneth Copeland of the Word of Faith Heresy, the Kenneth Copeland who believes in divine health and divine wealth and and his wife speaks to tornadoes and they obey her and things like that. That guy, you know, who's part of the Word of Faith Heresy. Um, apparently, there's been a measles outbreak in uh, Dallas-Fort Worth and ground zero for the measles outbreak is uh, Kenneth Copeland's <laughs> church. Uh, to be expected. Now, apparently, I, I'm sure the folks there at uh, Kenneth Copeland's church will be um, seizing the opportunity to speak health and wealth into the good folks who attend their church and hopefully get vaccine uh, vaccinated, that kind of thing. Um, so we got that news story. I've got a, um, a, news, uh, a recent article uh, published by Albert Muller that I want to pass along f- to you called The Sheer Weightlessness of So Many Sermons, Why Expository Preaching Matters. And then uh, case in point of uh, something that is a weightless sermon, we will not be listening to the entire sermon, but uh, David Crank of Faith Church in St. Louis, uh, David Crank of Faith Church in St. Louis, we will be doing a a David Crank update, and let's just say that what we're going to be hearing, I think, qualifies as... um, a weightless sermon. I, I think that's a. I think that's a fair way of um, categorizing it. We will not be listening to its to it in its entirety. Um, but um, 
Yeah, it's just uh, we'll we'll talk about it when we get there. But again, it's just really bizarre. Um, it's about not letting other people discourage you. You don't want that to happen now, do you? And uh, the importance of getting to the top, you know, things like that. And then in our sermon review, we will be listening to a sermon from Cornerstone Church in uh, Chandler, Arizona, um, uh, about manhood. And um, the basis for the sermon is the um, the movie Thor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a movie about that Norse deity, the false god Thor. So yeah, that's what that'll round out today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Again, there is no particular theme for today's episode. It's just kind of you know a stinking pot, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, potpourri. You know what I'm saying? So uh, we're gonna dive right into the program. Make yourself comfortable. Fuzzy bunny slippers do enhance your listener experience. And uh, with that, we'll dive into the program proper. Here we go. From the ABC News website, the headline reads, Efren Taylor accused of $11 million Christian Ponzi scheme by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Yeah, um, this is rather embarrassing, rather embarrassing for two men uh, who are, well, notorious for the word of faith heresy. Uh, that would be Bishop Eddie Long. Again, uh, the word bishop there is kind of a misnomer, and uh, saying it's kind of a misnomer is putting it lightly. Um, but uh, also, uh, <clears throat> that would be Joel Osteen was uh, and his church out there in Lakewood was also involved in uh, promoting Efren Taylor and his so-called Christian Ponzi scheme. Now, keep in mind, with the Word of Faith heresy, money and prosperity is an important thing, and so they're always looking for folks that can... Uh, be the testimonial for the truthfulness of their message, you know. So the idea is, is that you know, what you know what I, you notice is about diet pills. Uh, when you uh, got somebody out there promoting the latest, you know, just take this pill and you'll lose two hundred pounds. Uh, scheme that they're always looking for somebody who can give a testimonial, and so some guy will get up there and say, you know, yeah, I lost 150 pounds, and all I did was uh, take this one blue pill every single day, and and sure enough, I lost 150 pounds. And at the bottom, there's this like legal uh, notage that says results, individual results may vary, uh, results are not typical, you know, things like that. Uh, well, Efren Taylor would be one of those guys in a health and wealth prosperity setting like Bishop Eddie Long's church or Lakewood out there in uh, in uh, Houston, Texas, you know, somebody like Efren Taylor would be the guy who, you know, proves that their theology is the truth. And, uh, and it, well, anyways, promoting Efren Taylor and his um, financial investment strategies has led to some people losing great, huge, enormous sums of money. Um, here's the uh, Nightline story on Efren Taylor and those who've been duped by him. Uh, here we go. The pastor was Eddie Long. Good morning. At the time, one of the most powerful black preachers in America. Your life is about to change. Five years ago, he introduced his megachurch to this man. Put your hands together and receive my friend, my brother, the great Ephraim Taylor. And lives did change. Ephraim Taylor was a self-proclaimed millionaire only in his 20s and a preacher's son who spoke the language of the church. To these families, he was a financial whiz kid. We're going to show you how to get wealth and use it for the building of his kingdom. 
It was all part of what he called his wealth tour, sermons about self-improvement and financial pitches later in private. Security officials now say these families were victims of a Ponzi scheme that reached into churches across the country. From Eddie Long's in Atlanta to Joel Olstein's in Houston, officials say he owes millions to investors in several states. He preached self-improvement and shared stories of his success as a young black man on shows like Montel Williams. So I went on to high school, ended up creating my own internet company, raised three quarters of a million dollars in high school. Even here on ABC. So where do you see yourself in 10 years? 10 years from now. Probably a minister at somebody's congregation. And when he spoke to churchgoers, his words resonated. You are here in God's house on this morning. He sounded like a godly person to you. He did. I mean, he, he's quoted scriptures. Lillian Wells says she met privately with Taylor after hearing him speak at church that morning in Atlanta. She says Taylor sold her on his socially conscious investment that she'd be giving back to her community. And I was promised to get a 20% return on my money. So in December of 2009, she gave Taylor $122,000, everything she had, out of her retirement account. She told us he gave her these papers. He claimed they showed he invested her money in a real estate venture that turned around homes in inner cities. But then, she says, he disappeared. I couldn't get a hold of anybody, so then I started calling the 800 numbers. You know, so I just can't get them. This is your retirement. Yes. And it's gone. Yes. Yes. It's gone. Bad, isn't it? <laughs> You're blessed, prosperous, victorious. In Houston, Texas, at the megachurch of Pastor Joel Olstein, the flock was introduced to Taylor when, according to the church, he was invited to speak to a small classroom group about biblical financial principles. That was where the kiosk came out of. Gary and Anita Dorio were there and later invested $1.3 million, their life savings and her mother's retirement. The Dorios thought they were investing in an inner city laundromat, a juice bar, and a gas station. Were you spending money on things that existed or that were imaginary? Some existed and some didn't. Attorney Kathy Lerman says hundreds of investors have told her the same story. I cannot tell you how many people have said to me, I thought I was the only one. One thing Taylor was apparently investing in was his wife Michelle's music career. In 2009, on this sneak Now, this sounds familiar, investing in your wife's music career. Didn't we hear that about uh, what's-his-face down there in Singapore? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Listen in. This is some great, quote, Christian Lyrics, and so, yeah, if you want to see this, by the way, um, yeah, there's some quite interesting dancing that goes along with this that doesn't quite look Christian to me. Peak of her album, Taylor credits himself as executive producer and hot male model. We tell him to stick to his day job, but we're not sure what that is. Maybe you know this one. I'm sexy, I'm perfection, I'm that hotness, pay attention. The government said Taylor paid for the studio time for his wife's music career with the money that came pouring in. And there he is again, making a cameo. All together now. Yeah, the name of the song is I Move Like a... Well, the lyrics are I Move Like a Billionaire and I Don't Care and I Don't Care and... Okay. 
Or the complete version is available on iTunes. In August of 2011, we started looking for Taylor, first at the headquarters he'd listed for his businesses. The address led to a post office box inside this mail store. He's a thief. Lisa Conway worked for Taylor in 2010. She sold yet another investment his company was pitching. I would see things that weren't appropriate. Like? I had caught them trying to manipulate paperwork. It sounds like you don't believe any of this stuff existed. Because I know so much. We had folks that came. Soon, she says, panicked families were banging down the doors of this office where she and Taylor worked. There's got to be fear on his part that this is all coming down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You could see him sweat. Come. Back in Texas, the Dorios still hold on to their faith, but they've left Lakewood Church where they first met Taylor. The church told us when Ephraim tried to promote his services as a financial advisor, they stopped him and that they did a search before he spoke and didn't find anything negative. A staff member did make the announcement, we're not endorsing this person, we're not telling you to invest with him. Yeah. Also, too, you would expect that anyone that comes to the church, they would have researched him. And she says when she told the church what happened... It was at first, you know, oh, Anita, how could you? Like... <laughs> How many of you want to get paid this morning? Somebody raise their hand, give God a praise if you want to get paid this morning. Hey, Mr. Taylor, over here, Lillian Wells would like to get paid. Now, remember last week's episode, um, you know, money schemes? When somebody in the pulpit gets up and talks about, hey, who wants to get paid? Who wants to get rich? Who wants to, you know, you're dealing with a scammer. Yep, and this is the other end of that. You know, the people who lose their entire life savings and um yeah you, you attend a prosperity heresy church not only you're likely to lose your soul you may lose your life savings from somebody who claims to be uh, you know uh, a visionary uh financier from god um yeah there's no such thing and uh where finance you know by the way church the, the job of the church is to make disciples of all nations to preach Christ and him crucified for our sins and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, not uh, health, wealth, and prosperity. Yeah, two completely different messages, if you know what I mean. But she says that even after asking the church for help, she's left with nothing. What's the first thing the bishop said to you all? <laughs> well, he came in and he said, basically, church ain't got no money. Lillian no longer attends Bishop Long's church, and she says she was forced to file for bankruptcy last September. My name is Ephraim Taylor. I'll see you guys the rest of this weekend. Her minister, Eddie Long, claimed that he and his church did nothing wrong. Come on, In 2011, Long released this video pleading with Taylor to return the money. Please do what's right. The church told us they do continue to hope the responsible parties will restore the funds they took from congregants at New Birth and churches around the country. Even people who have known Taylor since these days, back when he was just starting out, say they don't know where he or most of the money has gone. We were young, ambitious guys, and I liked that about him. So, I mean, he's like up and disappeared, you know, probably living, living large in some third world nation or something, you know. Christopher says he met Taylor when they were both 19 and they briefly sold vending machines together. He claims he even invested $26,000 of his own money with Taylor. But what bothers Christopher most is he convinced his own father to give Taylor 75000 He says neither of them got more than a fraction back. 
it cost me a big lesson, but I'm not going to get it back. And smashing his face really isn't going to help me. The Dorios told us they're also turning the other cheek. It's not the easiest thing to do, but we live by what the Word of God says, and we have to forgive you. For, and we have come to a place where we've forgiven him. In May 2000. Now, there's the gospel, forgiveness of sins. And it's rather than hearing it from Joel Osteen, Eddie Long, and Ephraim Taylor, we're hearing it from the victims. Interesting. Very interesting. In 12, we heard from an attorney representing Taylor who said Taylor is not in hiding but has stayed out of the spotlight because of concerns for his safety. And he said Taylor unequivocally denies that he looted investor proceeds to fund an extravagant lifestyle. And then last week, 15 months after we first reported this story, the lookout team got a tip. Someone had located Ephraim Taylor and his wife. So they spotted him. Now, there's more to the story, but if you want to uh, really uh, watch the rest of the story, uh, go to the ABC uh, News Nightline website and uh, look up Ephraim Taylor, and uh, you should be able to find the entire story there and can watch it in its entirety. But, again, I pass that along as kind of a word to warning, uh, a word of warning. Those of you out there who are believing that Christianity is all about you becoming healthy, wealthy, and all that kind of stuff, uh, not only have you bought into a false theology that will eventually lead you into hell, but you may find yourself being fleeced uh, to the tune of uh, that one family, more than a million bucks. Um, yeah, so yeah, money and money scammers generally go together. You know, uh, so you know, a false theology of money will lead to money scams. They're like vultures. They, 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 when they see that the, the victim isn't going to move, they're going to come and take their bite. You, you get what I'm saying. Okay, from the uh, Dallas Observer uh, website, and this is, again, this is not the, uh, the best news source, but they've got a story here that um, I've taken some time to vet and turns out that it's true. Uh, but uh, the uh, Dallas Observer uh, the headline reads, there's a measles outbreak at vaccine-denying pastor Kenneth Copeland's Fort Worth, Texas, uh, Fort Worth Church. Uh, for several days now, state health officials in Texas have been sounding the alarm about a nascent measles outbreak in North Texas. As of Friday, there have been nine confirmed cases, a number that will grow as news reports from local health agencies filter up to the state. The epicenter of the outbreak is Tarrant County, which has now confirmed 10 cases, and the epicenter of the cases in Tarrant County seems to be at Eagle Mountain International Church. This is where Kenneth Copeland holds court. Pastor Terry Copeland Pearsons delivered the news in a sermon last Wednesday, quote, there has been a confirmed case of the measles from the Tarrant County Public Health Department, and that is a really big deal in that America, the United States, has been essentially measles-free for, I think, uh, 10 years. And so when measles pops up anywhere else in the United States, the health department, well, you know, it excites them. You know what I mean? I, I don't mean. I, I don't mean that they're happy about it, it, but that they get very excited and respond to it because it doesn't take much for things like that to spread. The sermon was awkward, to say the least. Pearson's is the eldest daughter of mega-pastor Kenneth Copeland, and her church is one of the cornerstones of Kenneth Copeland Ministries, his sprawling evangelical empire. He's far from the most vocal proponent of 
the discredited theory that the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine causes autism. But between his advocacy of faith healing and his promotion of the vaccine autism link on his own online talk show, he's not exactly urging his flock to get their recommended shots. That left his daughter doing some nifty theological footwork in last week's sermon as she struggled to explain how believers should trust their health to both God and medical professionals. Quote, there are a lot of people that think the Bible, we talk about walking by faith. It leaves out things such as, I don't know, people just get strange. But when you read the Old Testament, you find that it's full of precautionary measures and it's full of the law. So why did uh, the Jewish people, why did they not die during the plague? Because the Bible told them how to be clean and told them how to disinfect, told them there was something contagious. And the interesting thing is that it wasn't a medical doctor per se who took care of those things. It was the priesthood. It was the ministers. It was those who knew how to take the promises of God as well as the uh, commandments of God to take care of things like disinfection and so forth. And so many of the things that we have been in medical practice now actually are things that you can trace back to Scripture. It's when we find out what's in the Scripture that we have wisdom. So she concludes by announcing that the church was hosting a pair of free vaccination clinics and urging everyone to show up, advice that probably would have been more helpful two months ago. Yeah. So, yeah, when you're into faith healing and and divine health and wealth, I mean, who needs a vaccine? All you got to do is speak words of faith to uh, the measles, right? And instead, they ended up having to tell people to go get vaccinated. Yeah, we would call that medical backpedaling, if you know what I mean. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we've got a uh, Albert Mueller update and a David Crank update. But during the break, premiere of our brand new Max Holiday entitled Welfare's Angels. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. in other news, it seems that the inhabitants of Earth are not the only ones subject to economic slumps. Jensen Franklin, through direct revelation from God, has given us information that says that the unemployment rate within God's own army has drastically risen. Take a listen. An angel came and opened the doors and broke the chains. My point to you is simply this. When you don't pray, angels become unemployed. The greatest tragedy 
of prayerlessness is the unemployment of angels. Because when you pray, God gives angels their their orders. When you pray, the spiritual battle in the heavenlies begins to be armed with the prayers of the saints and people binding. And whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Attention angels, this is uh, the Holy Spirit. I have an announcement regarding the uh, latest downturn in the economy. And I understand that a lot of you have been unemployed lately due to a lack of prayer. And I wish there was something that I could do about this. But, you know, I feel so powerless when it comes to these kind of things. Um, we, uh, we've uh, created a welfare uh, basket, uh, spiritual relief type of thing. And uh, so those of you who have uh, been hit hard by the latest downturn and are now finding yourselves unemployed, uh, please uh, proceed over to the uh, <clears throat> relief office and uh, we'll see what we can do to help you out. Thank you. All right. All right. Everyone just calm down. Thank you. Now, I know that none of you care to be here, but since we're experiencing a worldwide shortage of prayer, it would behoove you to keep calm and allow us to do our jobs. Gabriel, put your wings down. There's not nearly enough room for that. And Michael, Michael, don't cut in line. I know you're the big cheese around here, but all of us have been affected equally. Wait your turn. Next! What's your name? George. George. Whatever. Where'd you fly in from? South Orange County, California. California? That's frontline enemy territory. How many tours have you done down in that kill box? About nine. Oh, you're quite the veteran. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's Rick Warren's territory, right? Yeah, he's got most of the people down there praying for purpose, better sex, other useless junk like that. Those idiots don't even realize they don't need God for such things. I hear you on that one. Now, I know it's not much, but this is what I can give you. It's our premium spiritual relief basket. Thank you. I'll be sure to put this to good use. (laughs) I know you will. Next! What's your name, bub? Harold. Okay. Harold, where you hailing from? Charlotte, North Carolina. Good gravy. You must really be hurting. Everyone knows that Stephen Furtick's neck of the woods is just filled to bursting with heretical slop. Uh, what are they praying for nowadays? It's the strangest thing. They keep praying to the sun, telling it to stand still. I don't get it. Those morons! Don't they know nothing about astrophysics? If they were to stop the sun, they'd burn half the world to a crisp. Moon rocks have higher IQs than those dingbats. All right, got a relief basket for you. I greatly appreciate the help. <laughs> I know, you're welcome. Next! And your name is... Bob. Bob? I swear, angels these days. All right, Bob, lay it on me. Where you from? Vatican City. Vatican City? (laughs) Are those bozos still praying to dead people and inanimate objects? More than ever. You know, that really frosts my cookies. I mean seriously. Take Mary, for example. That poor woman has been dead for millennia. She's not answering prayers. Who was the dumb schmuck that thought praying to her would do anything in the first place? Humans! They're so darn gullible sometimes. Anyway, here's your relief basket. Sorry, just getting real tired of that. 
happens every time I give someone a basket. Next! Purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Hello, I'm Brandon House of WorldviewRadio.com. WorldviewRadio.com is the world's premier biblical worldview online radio network. And now you can take it with you on the go with our free app that you can download free of charge at WorldviewWeekend.com forward slash APP. That's WorldviewWeekend.com forward slash APP. And you'll hear the daily and weekly radio programs by people like T.A. McMahon of The Brian Call, Chris Rosebro of Fighting for the Faith, Usama Dakdok and The Truth About Islam, Noise of Thunder with Chris Pinto, Justin Peters and the Justin Peters Program, Crosstalk, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and Prophecy Today, Jesse Johnson with the Bible Teaching Program of Emmanuel, Dr. John Whitcomb, and Mike Gendron of Proclaiming the Gospel Radio, as well as Carl Tycrib with Forcing Change Radio. All of these biblically-based radio programs are available free of charge at worldviewradio.com and through our free app at worldviewweekend.com forward slash app. Biblical Worldview Radio that you can take with you on the go. All right, we're back. Uh, Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor is engaging in what we'll call here weightless preaching. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month, that's it, to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here at Fighting for the Faith 
without it. Okay, moving along, I have got a, a brief little article I would like to read for, uh, for you from uh, Albert Muller's website. The name of the article is The Sheer Weightlessness of So Many Sermons, Why Expository Preaching Matters. Albert Muller writes, he says, If preaching is central to Christian worship, what kind of preaching are we talking about? The sheer weightlessness of much contemporary preaching is a severe indictment of our superficial Christianity. When the pulpit ministry lacks substance, the church is severed from the word of God and its health and faithfulness are immediately diminished. To which I would say, amen and amen. Great point, Dr. Muller. He continues, many evangelicals are seduced by the proponents of topical and narrative preaching. The declarative force of Scripture is blunted by a demand for story, and the textual shape of the Bible is supplanted by topical considerations. In many pulpits, the Bible, if referenced at all, becomes merely a source for pithy aphorisms or convenient narratives. The therapeutic concerns of the culture too often set the agenda for evangelical preaching. Issues of the self predominate, and the congregation expects to hear simple answers to complex problems. Furthermore, postmodernism claims intellectual primacy in the culture, and even if they do not surrender entirely to doctrinal relativism, the average congregant expects to make his or her own final decisions about all important issues of life from worldview to lifestyle. Authentic Christian preaching, on the other hand, carries a note of authority and a demand for decisions not found elsewhere in society. The solid truth of Christianity stands in stark contrast to the flimsy pretensions of postmodernity. Unfortunately, the appetite for serious preaching has virtually disappeared among many Christians who are content to have their fascinations with themselves encouraged from the pulpit. One of the first steps to a recovery of authentic Christian preaching is to define exactly what we mean when we discuss authentic Christian ex exposition. Many preachers claim to be expositors, but in many cases, this means merely that the preacher has a biblical text in mind, no matter how tenuous its relationship is to the sermon. I offer the following definition of expository preaching as a framework for consideration. Here's the definition. Expository preaching is that mode of Christian preaching that takes as its central purpose the presentation and application of the text of the Bible. All other issues and concerns are subordinated to the central task of presenting the biblical text. As the Word of God, the text of Scripture has the right to establish both the substance and the structure of the sermon. Genuine exposition takes place when the preacher sets forth the meaning and the message of the biblical text and makes clear how the Word of God establishes the identity and worldview of the church as the people of God. That's the definition. Muller then continues, he says, Expository preaching begins with the preacher's determination to present and explain the text of the Bible to his congregation. This simple starting point is a major issue of division in contemporary homiletics. For many preachers assume that they must begin with a human problem or a question and then work backwards to the biblical text. On the contrary, expository preaching begins with the text and works from the text to apply its truths to the lives of believers. 
if this determination and this commitment are not clear at the outset, something other than expository preaching will result. The preacher always comes to the text and to the preaching event with many concerns and priorities in mind, many of which are undeniably legitimate and important in their own right. Nevertheless, if genuine exposition of the Word of God is to take place, those other concerns must be subordinate to the central and irreducible task of explaining and presenting the biblical text. Expository preaching is inescapably bound to the serious work of exegesis. If the preacher is to explain the text, he must first actually study the text. He must devote the hours of study and research necessary to understand the text. Along with his time, the pastor must invest the largest portion of his energy and intellectual engagement to this task of accurately handling the Word of God. If you're not sure what that means, see 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. There are no shortcuts to genuine exposition. The expositor is not an explorer who returns to tell tales of the journey. He is a guide who leads the people into the text and teaches the arts of Bible study and interpretation, demonstrating these essential disciplines in his preaching. Now, I want to make a note here. The, the, that last portion of the sentence, demonstrating these essential disciplines in his preaching, when a pastor engages in Bible twisting of the sort that we see from men like uh, Stephen Furtick, Perry Noble, Rick Warren, Joel Osteen, and others, they are demonstrating by example how not to, well, how not how to not to actually handle the text. The problem is, is that the people who are held under their sway, think that that's how to properly understand the Bible because that's what's being demonstrated to them by these false teachers. You get what I'm saying, but we continue. Uh, Dr. Muller then says, The expository preacher, moreover, yields to both the content and the shape of the biblical text as the inerrant and infallible word of God. Divinely designed and directed, God has spoken through the inspired human authors of Scripture, and each different genre of biblical literature demands that the preacher give careful attention to the text, allowing it to shape the message. Far too many preachers come to the text with a sermonic shape in mind and a limited set of tools in hand. Now, to be sure, the shape of the sermon may differ from preacher to preacher and should differ from text to text, but genuine exposition demands that the text establish the shape as well as the substance of the sermon. The preacher rises in the pulpit to accomplish one central purpose, to set forth the message and meaning of the biblical text— This requires historical investigation, literary discernment, and faithful employment of the analogia fide, that's the analogy of faith, uh, to interpret the scriptures by scripture. It also requires the expositor to reject the modern conceit that what the text meant is not necessarily what it means. If the Bible is truly the enduring and eternal word of God, it means what it it meant as it is newly applied in every generation. Once the meaning of the text is set forth, the preacher moves to application. Application of biblical truth is a necessary task of exposition, expository preaching, but application must follow the diligent and disciplined task of explaining the text itself. T.H.L. Parker describes preaching like this. 
expository preaching consists in the explanation and application of a passage of Scripture. Without explanation, it is not expository. Without application, it's not preaching. Application is absolutely necessary, but is also fraught with danger. The chief danger may well be the temptation to believe that the preacher can or should manipulate the human heart. The preacher is responsible for setting forth the eternal word of Scripture— Only the Holy Spirit can apply that word to human hearts or even open eyes and ears to understand and receive the meaning of the text. Every sermon presents the hearer with a forced decision. We will either obey or disobey the word of God. I would even add to this, believe or disbelieve the word of God. The sovereign authority of God operates through the preaching of his word to demand obedience, I would say, and demand also belief from his people and to delight them in it. Preaching is the essential instrumentality through which God shapes his people as the Holy Spirit accompanies the word. As the Reformers remind us, it is through preaching that Christ is present among his people. Great article by Dr. Muller, and uh, to which I would say amen, amen, and amen. There's some great points that he makes there. That's all the question I would ask you. Is your pastor preaching expositorily? Is he telling you what Scripture really says? Is he letting the text shape his sermons, or is he shaping the text uh, by his sermons? He's, you know, you, you get the, the idea of what I'm talking about. Now, speaking about weightlessness and non-expository preaching, where the shape of the sermon determines the text <clears throat> and not rightly handling what it means and not paying attention to any of those things, considerations and not studying to find out what a text really says in context. Well, a great example of that would be just about any pulpit. But today I've chosen an example from Faith Church in St. Louis and David Crank. And since we're doing a David Crank update, well, that requires me to do this. And Dreamweaver, yeah, because uh, David Crank of Faith Church St. Louis seems to be preoccupied with, um, well, um, weaving dreams and all that kind of stuff. Talk about superficial Christianity um, and uh, weightless uh, preaching that doesn't pay any attention to what any biblical text says. Here's, um, here's a snippet from a recent sermon delivered by David Crank entitled Room at the Top, and uh, see if you can make heads or tails of any of this. There's room at the top. Shout, there's room at the top. Look at your neighbor and say, start climbing. Have you ever heard that it's lonely at the top? You ever heard that? It's lonely at the top. Who made you the king of the hill? 
It's all about being on top. I have my friend here, Chad. He was actually one of the guys in the play last week, and uh, he was pretty near naked. So I decided, let's let him redeem himself and bring him back with his clothes on. Would you give Chad a hand? Chad? It's lonely at the top. I've noticed a lot of times in life that people are slow starters. They, they want to see the view from the top. They know that it's different on the top. But sometimes they're afraid that there's something at the top that's going to eat them, that's going to scare them, that's going to cause them to fall from the top. And so they never, ever challenge it. Uh, what on earth does this have to do with anything that the Bible actually teaches in context? I mean... Oh, I mean, are you afraid of being at the top? Where does the Bible talk about getting to the top? I've also allowed people in my own life to talk me into staying at the bottom. Whatever you do, don't stay at the bottom of life when you're supposed to climb to the top just because all your friends are at the bottom. Where does it say in the Bible I'm supposed to climb to the top? See, the key is, is to get up on top where God wants you to be, to soar the... Where does it say that God wants me to be on top? The heights that he's called you to be so that you can come and throw a lifeline or a rope down to your friends and elevate their life. How do you elevate their life? You elevate the way they think. The Bible says, as a person thinketh in his heart, so is he. In other words, the way you think is a direct outcome or outpouring of your life. The way you do life has a lot to do with the way you think. Now, you know, Chad here, I asked him to kind of uh, climb this wall. And th- by the way, you're at the Saturday night service, so we haven't tried this. Uh, they cleaned this stage 20 minutes ago. Thousands of women came here Friday and Saturday. Would you give our volunteers a hand for putting this back together? If you would have seen this place two hours ago. So we don't know, but Chad, I, I-, I want you to-, to climb up this mountain. Uh, so he's going to have somebody climb up a mountain on stage? What? on earth is this? Oh, come on, Chad. You know, a lot of times you got to talk people into climbing up. Maybe it's a teenager living at your house. Maybe it's a, uh, another relative living in your basement and you try to wake them up in the morning and you try to coach them and you, you do everything you can. If, I, if I'm talking about somebody that you are familiar with, say, man, if you don't, if you didn't say, oh man, I think it's you. It's oh me. Well, if you're afraid, go ahead and put these blindfolders on. Sometimes if you blindfold people, they decide, well, if I can't see the mountain, then I'll be okay. So if we blindfold him, here's a trick that I've learned in managing people a long time ago, is that sometimes people don't move till you light a fire underneath them. They got it, okay? So now... Yeah, no joke, he just lit a firecracker and threw it underneath that guy. Now, go ahead, climb that thing, boy. He's going to climb now because somebody lit a fire under his tail, and now he wants to get to the top. Come on, give him a hand. Look at him go. He's going to the top. He can't be stopped. Now, that's, that's good. That's fine. Now, the, is the view different from up there? It's just, it's different. It's a lot different from where he's at. See, you'll never know the view from the top if you don't start climbing to the top. But it's unfortunate to always have to have somebody light a firecracker do some kind of shock system like, hey, I'm going to leave you. This is your last chance. Whatever you do, don't be the type of person who has to be motivated by other people. Be a self-motivator. Come on down, Chad, for a minute. Come on, give yourself a hand for playing along. Self-motivator. Which biblical text in the New Testament and Old Testament talks, you know, that, that great 
self-motivator, um, be a self-motivator uh, passage. Which biblical text talks about that again? I'm, yeah, this this is an example of weightless, superficial, non-expository, quote, preaching, which isn't preaching at all. Motivated. Now, here's what I want you to do is, is to always remember when you're climbing up to the top, there's a picture that they have of a guy's fingers. Your fingers on the way to the top will look much like that. They will be bloodied, they will be blistered, they will be dirty. Because as you're climbing to the top, it's going to take everything that you can to get your... So there's a picture somewhere of guy, a guy with bloody fingers and stuff because he's climbing to the top. Not a biblical passage that talks about the bloody fingers you have while climbing to the top. ...yourselves to the top, and oftentimes it's the speeches that you have with yourself that keep you going. I, I was reading this week in 1 Corinthians... And Second Corinthians, and really, you were reading in First and Second Corinthians. Will you give us that great passage talking about how we don't preach ourselves, but we preach Christ? And a little bit, I made it into Galatians. That was kind of my my challenge this week is to see where I could go. And I noticed something that was kind of really good for me is that Paul kept saying the same thing at different passages in the Scripture. He was saying stuff like, uh, "I know I'm not a good public speaker, and they say that I'm also not a good writer." They say that my writings, quote, are hard. My writings are hard. And I I think there was something going on in his mind because when Paul was preaching, you have to remember that he wrote two-thirds of what we call the the, the New Testament. All the Pauline epistles came from this man. Incredible writing ability, but people said he was hard. In fact, I know that he wasn't a good public speaker. Now, notice he's not actually reading any of the Pauline texts. Um, He said he read 1st and 2nd Corinthians and part of Galatians, and... Well, I mean, that's great that uh, Pastor David Crank took some time to actually read a biblical text, and you know, a, a couple of them. But are you actually understanding anything about what First or Second Corinthians or the Book of Galatians is about from his synopsis up to this point? <laughs> no. Because uh, the Bible actually talks about him preaching so long that people were sitting in the window seal, and one guy actually fell out of the window seal and had a concussion. Some theologians say he died. So far, nobody has ever had that happen in one of my sermons. Nobody's ever got that bored. Now, I, I, I got to stoop to tricks like lighting firecrackers under my buddies, but I keep your butt awake. But he, in his own life, is sitting there thinking, I'm really not that great a communicator. But wait a minute. The mountain that God asked Paul to climb was to write what God had spoken. Uh, The mountain that God told Paul to climb. What are you talking about? So when the people were speaking against Paul, he had to fixate his eyes upon what he was called to do as he was going to the top instead of worrying about whatever. Where in Paul's writing does he talk about the importance of his climb to the top? I'm not familiar with any of those texts within the Pauline epistles. Everybody else thought he should do because everybody in life has a plan for your life. I mean, everybody. I'm talking about even me. I got a plan for your life. I got a plan for you to come to church, read the Bible, worship God, experience the fullness of joy. That's my plan for your life. God has a plan for your life. Pastor Nicole said it a minute ago. I have plans to prosper you and bring you to an expected end. Plans to prosper you. That's uh, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. Out of context, read it in context. It's not a general promise to you or to me. God was specifically addressing the um, remnant of the Israelites who survived the um, trip from Jerusalem to Babylon as they were hauled into captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar. But the enemy and the enemy 
and the people around you will keep you at the bottom and keep you from climbing to the top because you listen to what they say. I I wish that I could have talked to Paul that day. So Christianity apparently is all about keeping the devil uh, from keeping you down. What text says that? Because I would have told him, hey, Paul, forget what they say about you. Forget about their criticism. Forget about their rejection. Forget about the adversity. Forget about the prejudice. The fact is God's going to use what you say, and we're all going to be preaching it, so it can't be that bad. So here's David Crank, you know, offering um, after the fact, uh, after the death of Paul, uh, advice to Paul, you know, on how he would have coached him to success as he was climbing the mountain. Yet nowhere in Scripture does Paul talk about his climb to the top for the rest of our lives come on somebody ought to give god praise so the whole key is what you fix your eyes upon second corinthians 4 verse 18 it says so we fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen now you'd think by the way you know, by the fact that he quoted this you know we fix our eyes on what is seen not what is unseen um, that uh, this Bible passage um, you know, f- is about you know, how you fix your eyes um, on the things that, as you're climbing the mountain. You know, that the, that's the idea that's going on here. Fix your eyes on the things that are seen, uh, not seen, not rather than what is seen from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. Let's take a look at that. Let's see if this is you know, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is about... Paul talking about his climb to the top and and you know him w- w- not being at the bottom of life but climbing his way to the top of life and uh, and this is advice here at Second Corinthians four eighteen about you know make sure to fix your eyes on the things that aren't seen so that you know on your climb you know you can um, uh, achieve great things. Well, let's take a look at it in context to see if this passage says any of that. Second Corinthians chapter four. I'll start at verse thirteen. Here's what Paul writes. He says, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also spoke, knowing this, that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring with you, uh, bring us with you into his presence, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more, people may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Hmm. Yeah, you know, if uh, David had just taken a couple of moments and read the text in context and let what the text really says shape what he's saying here in this sermon, uh, he wouldn't be um, making the statements that he's making because this isn't about uh, Paul's great climb to the top as an example for us to follow. You know, this is about um, the eternal versus the transient. The transient is the here and now. Paul had his eyes focused on eternity, not the here and now, or an unfulfilled dream, you know, that kind of thing. But we continue. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So fix your eyes. Would you say that with me? So fix your eyes. If you really got a lot of personality, look at your neighbor right now and cross your eyes at him and say, you need your eyes fixed. Just do it. Just be crazy. My son and my daughter, they can cross one eye. 
I mean, anybody in here can cross one eye. Let me see your hand. I'm not going to ask you the front, but cross one eye. Uh, yeah, there you are. I knew it. Knew there'd be another guy cross one eye. Listen, in your life and in mine, oftentimes we need to get our eyes fixed. Fix our eyes upon God. Sometimes we don't climb because of them. Sometimes we climb in spite of them. If you're a note taker, you ought to write that down. Sometimes we climb because of them. Sometimes we climb in spite of them. There's been many a times that I was building and helping build the kingdom of God. And I had people come against me when I was doing what I felt God had called me to be and do. And so sometimes I was climbing because of them. I want to make my dad proud. He went on to glory. We'll make my family proud. Yeah, that's cool. Then there was people who came against me and I said, I'm going to do this because they said I couldn't do it. Anybody ever had anybody tell you you couldn't do it? This has nothing to do with any biblical text. Like literally nothing. It's not even, you know, remotely connected to anything the Bible actually says in context. In fact, if you want a guy to do something around the house, girls, just tell him he can't do it. My wife does that to me all the time. Bet you can't open this can of Beanie Weenies. Yes, I can. But you can't carry all four of those loads of laundry up those stairs. Yes, I can. And she stands at the top and goes, that's my man. I'm like, yeah, I'm your man. Hey, it ain't big, but you know what? It's got her name tattooed on the side of it. And that was not because it, it's just, that's good. So don't do it because of them. Don't do it in spite of them. Do it because that God has fashioned you for such a purpose. The reason why I finally I got it through my head, why am I climbing this mountain? Because it's going to be hard. Your fingers are going to hurt. It's going to get challenging. Why am I growing this business? Why am I raising this family? Because God caused you and called you to ride up on the high places, and he has a certain... God calls you to what? What passage says that again? Notice nothing that he's saying is actually stated anywhere in any biblical text in context mountain that he's fashioned for you and you and I got to climb it. If we don't do it, he'll do it. You have to do it. Second Corinthians five, verse five, it says, now the one who has fashioned us, would you say that fashioned us? Look like you're kind of sexy and say fashioned us. Come on guys, let's move it a little fashioned us. Even if, even if you're hunting boots, you're like fashioned us. Who has fashioned us in And for this very purpose, he has given us the spirit. Notice that's a capital S. That doesn't mean human spirit. Capital S means the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Now, the one who has fashioned us. Yeah. And again, this is Paul talking about eternity. Uh, Second Corinthians chapter five, verse one, continuing from the context of the end of chapter four, which we just read. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may uh, may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. Second Corinthians 5, 5 is talking about how God has prepared us and made us to be resurrected. This is a reference to the coming resurrection that we Christians will experience here. This isn't talking about 
God made us for a purpose, as in some kind of purpose here in this life. This is talking specifically about the resurrection of Christians. See, God has preordained and preordained you and I to do certain things a certain way to end up being exactly who we're supposed to be. And yet this text isn't about that. It's about the resurrection. Weird how you're not letting the biblical text shape your sermon, sir. And living our life to the fullness that we are created for. When he framed the whole world, believe it or not, he knew in 2012 that you would be this age. He knew in 2012 that you would be right in the midst of this particular problem that you're in the middle of right now. He knew also that in 2013, you're going to look back and you're going to go, wow, wish I hadn't sweated that deal in 2012 because it all worked out. And a year later, I don't even think it was a big deal because you're keeping your eyes off of the fact that your fingers are bleeding, off of the fact that you got rope burned, off of the fact that everybody saw you slide down. Off of the fact that it's going to be challenging and you're going to need gear and you're going to need suited up and you're going to need to have experience and education and skill and training. But when you get your eyes off of that and you get it upon what God has for you, then you realize this is bigger than I am. I'm called to do this and I'm not going to sweat it tonight. I'm t- Again, these verses that you quote have absolutely nothing, not even one micron of a word. Uh, an iota from the from the Greek alphabet, and they have nothing to do with anything that you're talking about. Talking to somebody right now, and I know there are many people who are going through something. Here's my word to you: strap yourself up, get all your harnesses on. What is that? Read Ephesians six tonight. It talks about having on the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, the breastplate of righteousness. Have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. God gave us everything that we need to climb to the top of our hill and to say, you know what? We're on top. We can't be stopped. God's called us to be here and we're staying. Come on, give the Lord a hand. That's good. Even if- uh, yeah, you, you get the point, right? None of this. Absolutely none of this has anything to do with any of these biblical texts and what they actually say. And yet this is supposedly a Christian sermon from a Christian church. It's a prime example of what uh, Dr. Muller was telling us about, the sheer weightlessness of so many sermons and why expository preaching matters. That wasn't an expository sermon. That was an insult to the biblical text because none of that that he was talking about have anything has anything to do with what any of those texts actually say. All right, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, sermon review um, about Thor and manliness. Mm -hmm. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the This is the air I breathe. I am. 
heard enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Come in. What was I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pond with my trusty double-barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh, no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. In today's Stinking Pot, episode numero uno. Yeah, I couldn't figure out how to work a theme on any of this stuff, except for general heresy and complete obfuscation.
The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Cornerstone Church Chandler, uh, Arizona. Lynn Winters presiding. The name of said sermon is Thor on Manhood. Now, keep in mind that Odinism was one of the arch enemies of Christianity. It was one of the false religions that held people in bondage uh, to a false god. And Odinism also involved human sacrifice. So the defeat of Odinism was actually a good thing for humanity. Now, I understand that Thor has been made popular by recent movies and you know comic books and things like that. And thus the occasion for the sermon. But how did Christianity survive this long without ever having to preach on Thor? Which will then talk about the purpose and function that mythological stories played in pagan cultures as we're listening to said sermon. So let me kill the music. Without any further ado, here is uh, Lynn Winters, uh, Cornerstone Church Chandler in Arizona, talking about Thor on manhood. Here we go. Hey, just want to say hi this morning to all of you that are at our Santan campus, and then thanks to all of you that are sitting in our overflow chairs uh, at the back. Uh, I get that's not the most comfortable. Thank you for doing that. Part of that is, is we've had our singles out in the tent, and now that temperatures are like 110 plus, we've actually given them the overflow room right now, but that just means it's that much more crowded in this room. And and you guys, you, you all get it. There's not enough seats uh, for who we have coming right now. Somewhere we're going to figure that out and, and fix that together. So, all right, here's the deal. As we begin, uh, two things uh, that I just got to make crystal, crystal clear. I get it. I get I get. I get I get it. I get that Thor uh, and, and his uh, father Odin, they're Nordic gods. I, I get it. Yeah, now notice what he says here. Listen to this real cl- carefully. He's going to have this disclaimer up, at fr- up front because apparently there's a little bit of controversy about this sermon. And, and if there was any thought in our heart that we were going to cause confusion or, or that someone was like going to convert to Odinism today, you know, we would, we would have avoided, uh, you know, using uh, the clips and stuff. A- anybody in here struggling with that? And you were thinking, you know, I'm right on the edge. of. Now, he's asking if there's anyone struggling with the fact they're preaching about Thor. Okay, there's going to be people raising their hands. Isn't the Christian thing to do then not to preach on Thor? Okay, all right, so we're we're okay with that. And then the second, so he just says, okay, if you're up, if you're this is if you're worried about that, we're, we're okay with that. Oh, I'm so glad that you're okay with that. But you're going against these people's consciences because they understand that Odinism and Thor and his father Odin are false gods. Maybe they understand something about the history of this religion and how Christianity set these people free from bondage to these false deities. The part that I just got to make really clear is, uh, no, uh, it is not me playing the part of Thor in the movie. It's, it, we had women coming and asking after us, you know, it's not. So we're okay with that. Now I'll just tell a joke and move along. Not, I, you know, I actually, yeah, I turned down the part. No, so, okay, so it's not... Uh, so here's the deal. Uh, we're just going to uh, talk. And it was interesting uh, because when I uh, saw the movie, I suddenly realized there is some really, really cool stuff in this movie that really uh, deals with this whole topic of manhood. And the part that's interesting about that is that I believe you and I live in a culture that's absolutely confused 
about what it means to be a man and, and what is a man's rightful place uh, in our culture and in our society. And so, okay, now listen, I I have no problem with this particular premise per se, and that is is that yeah, there's there's a lot of confusion about what equals real manhood out there. There, uh, no doubt about it. There's a ton of confusion. Now the question is. What source am I going to go to in order to determine uh, what's going to give me a correct understanding of what real manhood is? Um, normally, um, I never, it kind of as a rule, never turn to Hollywood movies to inform me about what real manhood is all about. Never. Um, I've never considered Hollywood to be known for its correct depiction of what would be considered godly manhood. In fact, in, in Hollywood, generally godly men are the blunt end of a joke. Godly men are mocked and made fun of. Who are the heroes put out by Hollywood? Um, Manly macho men who, well, they show their manliness... Based upon betting the woman, you know, or uh, you get what I'm saying here, um, you know, or being the guy. Hollywood does not give me what I would consider a biblical view of manhood. Quite the opposite. In fact, oftentimes when I attend movies, and I don't attend very many of them in a year, in a year maybe three a year now. Um, but, you know, from time to time we'll catch something on Netflix. But. Um, you know, over and again, you know, my view of Hollywood's depiction of manhood is, um, let's just say that I, um, I make fun of it. I just think it's complete ridiculous and it's not even close to what the Bible reveals. So number one, we got a problem. Why would I go to a Hollywood movie to quote, give me an idea of what manhood is all about Two, Why would I go to a Hollywood movie telling the story of a Nordic God and his son to give me the correct view of manhood? That doesn't make any sense. Now, this kind of leads to the issue of what was the role that these mythological stories played in Nordic culture pre-Christianity? Answer, these were the stories that were told to frame the people's worldview, okay? In other words, you know, you're sitting around the campfire up there in the Nordic regions, living in pagan paganism and worshiping Odin and Thor and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And these stories are told and retold to successive generations as a means of framing the worldview and explaining the world that you live in, helping you get an identity of who you are and your role in this creation. And, uh, and, and it also then frames your understanding of manhood. Yeah, that was part of the reason why these stories were told. If you read Augustine and his confessions, he talks about how growing up in in school when he was, you know, when he was growing up, you know, in the ancient world, you know, he was well versed in all of the stories of Zeus and Athena and Mars and Jupiter and all of the Greco-Roman deities, right? And all of these stories were told to him as a pagan little boy in order to help him to be a moral and upstanding citizen of uh, the Roman Empire. But the problem is, is that Augustine bemoans the fact that these deities were held up as moral standards, and yet he reads in the stories of these deities that they were immoral, 
the exact opposite of moral. And so we get the same problems with um, Thor and Odin. They don't look like deities. They don't sound and act like moral and upstanding deities. They act and, well, they act like glorified men, and that's the problem. So this is not an appropriate source for a Christian to turn to to teach them regarding manhood. We're just going to kind of take uh, some stuff from the movie. Uh, the interesting part about it is, is not only did they kind of hit on some really, really key points, the interesting part is there's actually some stuff that has some real biblical significance there. And my best guess is the guys who wrote the screenplay probably weren't Christ followers, and yet some of this stuff really has some biblical pinnings behind it. And you and I are just going to unpack that. now. Biblical pinnings behind it, even though that none of the guys working there, by his best guess, were Christ followers. Uh-huh. So this is really an authoritative source for understanding what the Bible teaches regarding true manhood. Th this is a fail from the beginning. Here's what I'm going to say out loud in this room. I get that a ton of us aren't fathers. It doesn't matter because we're talking today about manhood, which I'm just going to tell you that every one of us in this room is going to be affected by men's comprehension and understanding and ability to live as men the way that God designed them. So for some of us that are men and you're trying to navigate this moment, I'm hoping you walk out of here today with just an absolutely laser focus and go, oh, that's what this is about. And that's how I'm to relate to my world and to my family and to my career. And that's what this looks like. And you would walk out of here with just unbelievable clarity. I'm hoping young men in this room would suddenly go, so we're supposed to have a moment of clarity from a less than clear dubious source. That's it. That's the definition. That's, that's what I'm striving to. And that's what it's going to look like for me to step into this thing called manhood one day and to do it really, really well. Ladies, this is not the service to sharpen your elbows and to poke your husbands. But here's what it is. Uh, it's, a, it's going to give you absolutely uh, things to pray about on his behalf and things to praise him for when he gets it right. And I'm going to ask you to use the power of your womanhood to actually encourage and help him be a better man. And then maybe, uh, most importantly, if you're a young gal in this room and you aren't attached to a man, I hope you walk out of here today with a standard of what a godly man is supposed to look like. I've got a feeling there's some young ladies... You, so you're going to give a standard of what a godly man looks like from the movie Thor. It, it can't be done in this room who need to go home today and make a phone call and break off a relationship and say, look, you just ain't Thor. Okay. And uh, it so you want women to break off bad relationships because their man ain't Thor. Thor is now the standard of biblical manhood. Unbelievable. And, and that, that, that's where I'm going in my life. So, so here's the deal. We're just going to spend a little bit of time. We're going to have some fun looking at some clips and then just unpacking not only what the movie kind of revealed, but what Scripture reveals on this whole topic of manhood. We get to the first clip, uh, and we'll show it to you. Uh, it's early on in the movie. Uh, Thor is receiving the hammer. And here's what's obvious. It's obvious he doesn't understand it. It's obvious that he's filled with arrogance. It's so... We're now looking at the time when Thor receives his hammer. Obviously, he thinks this whole moment is all about his glory and all about all the attention being on him. The guy is just cocky out of his mind. 
So I want you to watch the clip. But the other part I want you to catch you watch the clip is as Odin, his father, hands in the hammer, listen to the description that Odin gives and says, this is the purpose of the hammer. Okay, so here's that first clip. So it starts off kind of... Yeah, they, they deleted the audio from the clip. Describing uh, the purpose of the hand... Just kidding, I'm totally worthy. I... He starts off describing the hammer, uh, and he says this about the hammer. Uh, it's two-sided. Uh, there's actually a dual purpose here. Uh, there's a side that's intended to build, and there's a side that's intended to battle. And here's the irony of the description. That is absolutely what God built men to do. That God intuitively uh, placed within the heart of a man. Okay, where in scripture does it say that God intuitively placed within the heart of man the bi- ability to build and battle? Hmm. This is an argument more from experience, not from a biblical text. This desire to build and the desire to battle. And, and the problem, though, happens when as men we get this thing turned around. And I guarantee you that as you've watched and as our culture has struggled with this topic, what you and I are witnessing is men who have turned the hammer the wrong direction. Mm. Do you think that maybe that might have something to do with our sinful, fallen nature? You notice that men just don't seem to automatically turn out well. I don't know if you've noticed this about kids, that when they come out of the womb, yeah, they might be cute and all, but um, they um, they aren't good. In fact, you don't have to teach kids how to be bad. In fact, it's a lifelong process to <clears throat> to discipline out of them the all the evil that seems to just crop up naturally in them. You get what I'm saying here? And with that have brought incredible consequences. And part of our hope today as we just have this conversation is that the men of Cornerstone would turn the hammers back. That you and I would lead out in this thing to say, no, 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 no. I am a man who builds the things that God has called me to build. And I am a man who battles the things that God has asked me to battle uh, in my life. Again, what text are you preaching from? Here's what happens too often for men. Men decide that the thing they're going to build is their career. It's really easy because it's so easy to measure a career. You know, it's, did I get a raise this year? Did I get the placard on the, on the wall? Did I move into the corporate office or not? What did my review look like uh, this year? And, and it's so easy to keep score that very often men's hearts are drawn to build our career. And we do this uh, thinking that the role of a man is to provide uh, things for his family. And so we go off and we start trying to leverage ourselves toward success and toward being better uh, in the marketplace. Uh, As we do that, it doesn't take long. And somewhere in your heart, you go, you know what? It's really weird because I find myself being highly successful at work and highly appreciated as a man. And I'm I'm one of the best employees uh, that they've got. But home feels like a struggle. I mean, there's just something not happening. And I don't know that I feel like I have the connections I'm supposed to have. And the relationships aren't where they ought to be. And here's the intuitive response of a man. I better get my family more stuff. And so we buy the jet skis because we're going to spend family time. And we buy the cabin in the mountains. And now we've got a second uh, mortgage uh, going on. We, we, we do the vacation because the vacation is going to be family time. But here's the problem. Now you've got to pay for all that. And so suddenly now we're actually spending more time at work and less time at home. 
In the midst of that, our wives say something. They, they begin to uh, express a discontent. And you and I, if we aren't careful as men, hear that expression of discontent as if she was attacking. And we are prone to say, don't you get it? Don't you understand how much I have done for this family? I have bought the jet skis and I've paid for the cabin. Everything I do is for this family. And we... T- yeah, now, I got a question. I mean, this isn't my problem um, at all. I mean, I'm sure that there is a percentage, I don't know how small or large, of the people attending Cornerstone in Chandler, Arizona, um, where this sounds like a page from their life. But this doesn't sound even remotely like a page from my life at all. So do I just tune out at this point? Um, You know, what do I do here? I'm, you know, I'm kind of bored at the point at the moment because, you know, it sounds like he's chewing somebody out that, you know, I may I may have met a guy like this or two in my life, but... Uh huh. Okay. Turn the hammer and we begin to battle the very thing we were supposed to build. And our hammer gets twisted in our hands. Guys, if, how about this? If, if, I, if I were to say to the average man, this is how easy this is. If I were to say to the average man, here's a hammer. And I want you to go build your neighbor's house with the one side of the hammer. And I want you to go destroy your own house with the other side of the hammer. Just go in your living room. There's not a man out there to go, that is the stupidest thing I've ever... Why would you ever do that? You get men that when you and I give our lives to intel, we're building another man's house. And often to the destruction of our own. And I'm just going to offer to you and say, why would you ever do that? And so, guys, here's the encouragement. Say, it's not about beating anybody up. It's just about saying, hey, would, would the men of Cornerstone maybe, maybe today turn the hammer? Would we realign our... So, major application point from the story of Thor, you've been given the, the, the hammer of, of Odin like Thor did and uh, like he did, you know, he received it. And so are you, will you, like all the other men of Cornerstone, turn the hammer? So now we've got um, example from Thor and his life and whatever the hammer is supposed to mean. And now we have application from the story of Odin and Thor to the men at uh, the so-called Christian church. So now we got application coming from the story of Thor. Yep, this is flat out pagan. This isn't biblical. Priorities and say, look, here's the deal. I, as a man of God, I, as a follower, I'm going to build the things that God has assigned me to build. And I, and I am going to battle the things that God has intended me to battle. And I'm not going to live in the confusion that men around me live in. What if we accomplish that together today? What if we, what, you're going to hear that a lot in this so-called sermon. What if we, what if we, what, you know, casting vision to a perfect future kind of thing. If we would just agree together to turn the hammer, not even a biblical concept. Uh, the next clip in the movie, it's interesting. Uh, Thor uh, has decided that the hammer is about him. And it's about his success and it's about his glory. He has a completely selfish idea about the abilities and the strength that have been entrusted to him. 
he goes off to fight uh, some lifelong enemies uh, called the Jotun. Uh, his father has already conquered him in the past, but there's been a tenuous peace. And Thor says, look, if I'm going to be the next leader, if I'm going to be the next guy, they need to learn to fear me the way that they fear my dad. And so for no reason other than to go pick a fight and have his own victories, he goes off to fight the Jotun. He takes his friends who end up wounded and hurt within the excursion, and he comes back proud of what he's done. And in that moment, his father encounters him and says, Thor, it's not what the hammer was ever intended for. The power of the hammer wasn't for your glory. It was for your people's benefit. And he says to Thor, you are simply a selfish boy. So here's that clip. And so now we tell the, oh, this is a bad example of Thor, man. Yeah, yeah, uh uh-huh. Isn't the purpose of the gift of teaching given by God the Holy Spirit to certain men within the church, the building up of the body of Christ in the preaching of his word? Isn't that the purpose of teaching, the gift of teaching? Weird. Um, Yeah, 10 minutes, 36 seconds into the sermon. So far, no word of God, but we've got uh, applications to people to be applying to their lives from the story of Thor. So here's the question, what, what would happen? What would, how powerful would it be in the lives of men if you and I began to build the things that we were intended to build? And what if, how powerful would it be? Wouldn't it be great? He's casting vision here. Battle for the things that we were supposed to battle for. What would it look like if you and I were worthy and lived lives of men? So here, here would be the first part. Uh, you and I would have to be sure that the things we were building were the things that really mattered, the things that really, really would make our lives count, and the things that God, when he created us as men, intended us to invest our lives building. So if you've got your Bibles, go with me. uh, All right, so now we finally are going to get into the Bible itself. The passage is Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. If you're not familiar, if you go to the back of your Bible and then work to the left. Ephesians chapter 5. It's verse 25. Now here's the deal. This verse happens in the context of talking to husbands about their wives. Don't go there yet. Because I believe... Okay, I want to make something clear here. Technically, there's no such thing as a Bible verse. Okay, work with me for a second. The numbers that you see in your Bible that indicate chapters and verse numbers were an apparatus that was added long after the completion of the uh, biblical canon in order to help people find particular passages of Scripture. It was kind of a way of putting an address system, if you would. So there's really technically no such thing as a verse. There really isn't. Although I use that that nomenclature myself, I refer to verses uh, oftentimes when I'm teaching. But the reason I'm bringing this up, this point up in this particular sermon, in this particular context, is this: is that the letter written to the church in Ephesus doesn't make any sense unless you read it as a letter, okay, in its entirety. 
there's a flow to this entire letter that gets disrupted and distorted and destroyed when you ignore the letter itself and everything that it's saying and just zero in on a verse, okay, uh, in the context of trying to tell men on what it means to, you know, to have, you know, to, to manhood or whatever that means, okay? Um, so here going to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, in the context of this sermon is doing violence to the biblical teaching, and we're not actually understanding anything about really what this passage is about. I'll demonstrate that in a minute with the context, but listen in. The more powerful example for us today is the example of what Jesus was willing to do on behalf of the church. The thing that he said, look, if I don't get anything else right, if my life doesn't come to end, this is what I'm going to invest in. This is what I'm... Where in Scripture does Jesus say, even if I don't get anything else right, here's what I'm going to invest in, here's what I'm going to do? You can't put those words in Jesus' mouth. They're not even close to anything that he said, nor even come close to actually what he came to earth to do and accomplish. (sighs) I'm going to build with my life. That's what I'm going to do. So here it is. It's Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse uh, 25. Here's what it says. Husbands, love your wives. And then he gives the example. Just as Jesus loved the church, and gave himself up for her. Now, guys, you get the example that Paul here is drawing from. He's saying, look, husbands, as you go to treat your wives, do this, build into this, invest into this the same way that Jesus gave his entire life building into establishing the church. Now, building into and establishing the church, this is talking about Christ's sacrifice of himself. Love then being sacrificial love now let's t- let's take a look at this this is this is a it's tough to start here in ephesians chapter 5 the reason why is cuz the opening part of ephesians is all about the gospel okay l- let me read a couple of passages from the opening section of ephesians so that you get what i'm saying because the therefores these imperatives uh, you know regarding our sanctification don't make any sense when they're divorced from and spoken apart from the gospel so let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 1. We'll, we'll take a look at the opening pa- uh, passage itself, starting at verse 1. Here's what it says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us to be in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in, uh, before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, with which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also you, you uh, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of of his glory. Uh, fast forward a little bit to chapter 2. And you, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he has made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us, uh, seated, us, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. This is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you at one time, at that time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promises. You had no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, and so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." You see, the whole first portion of the letter is a retelling, a reaffirming of the gospel, okay? So by the time you get to chapter 5, the therefores hinge on the gospel text itself, and you can't separate the two or you more end up engaging in moralism, okay? So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, in light of the mercies of God, in light of the fact that he's, that God has given us the gift of salvation, grace, and faith in Christ, and he has torn down the hostility by his blood, he's redeemed us, purchased us, predestined us, and all of that, right? In light of all of that, verse 15, chapter 5, so look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, 
Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So here's the idea, okay? That passage doesn't make sense unless you first read the the opening half of Ephesians, which talks about Christ's forgiveness and mercy and how he gave himself for us, rescued us from the wrath of God and transformed us and gave us the gift of salvation and grace and mercy and forgiveness, all of that, right? You can't, this passage that makes no sense. Now, is this a passage that tells us the ultimate meaning of manhood? Not exactly, but it does tell us the right way for a man to behave and to treat and to frame and understand his relationship to his wife. The picture, the right picture of marriage is the same picture of Christ and what he's done to the church, done for the church. It's a sacrificial love. Completely, you know, this is what this passage says. But is that really what um, Thor and Odin are all about? Is that how Lynn Winters is going to handle this text? I wouldn't bet on it. Here's the thing, guys. You realize the church is us. And that Scripture saying, look, with all of Jesus' power, with all of his glory, with, with all that he could have done to have been the guy at the front of the parades or to have found himself sitting on a throne with everybody bowing down. Show me what... Yeah, but see, Jesus is sitting on the throne. And there will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One moment that Jesus takes his strength and takes his capacity and uses it for himself. And just the opposite is true. Jesus understands in that moment that everything he has been trusted with with, by his heavenly Father was to be used for your benefit and mine. And he gave his entire life to winning people, to knowing his Father, to training and building up the disciples for your benefit. Notice he's not talking about how Christ gave himself up for the church. This is talking about Christ's death on the cross. That's not any of the things that Lynn Winters is describing. And for mine, so much so that he lays down his life. Now there's the mention of it. He lays down his life. How so? In what way? What are you talking about? For us. It just reinforces how crucial it is, guys. It's so close to preaching the gospel, and yet so far. I was I was almost going to play the gospel nugget soundbite, but that really wasn't it. 
He's not, he hasn't explained how Jesus laid down his life. That you and I are building what we ought to be building. And that you and I fundamentally understand within our hearts that whatever strength God has given you, whatever the wonder of your manhood is, it is not for your glory. It is for the benefit of those God has placed in your life. So let me just go through. I'm going to give you four places that I'm just going to ask, what if, what if you and I today, as the men of Cornerstone, turned the hammer? And what if you and I, for the next 12 months, just began to build the things that God says are important to build? How far would we get? And how influential would our lives be if the hammer was pointed? How influential would our lives be? How is that a metric of Christian sanctification? Pointed in the right direction. So here you are, okay? Four things, four things that God has called all of us as men to build, okay? Number one, your relationship with God. Your relationship with God. Now, I agree. I mean, there's no, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but what does it mean? What are you talking about? How cool would it be? If 12 months from today, you and I could sit in this room on next Father's Day and the men of Cornerstone could sit here and say, look, I'm just going to tell you, for 12 months, I have built my relationship with God. This has been where I've put my effort and my priority. And I'm just telling you, I have moved so far in my devotion to Jesus. I have, I have, this is all law, no gospel, law, 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 do, do, do. Jesus Christ in the last 12 months. I have learned so much scripture in my life. I have become so much more like Jesus because I have been building this into my life. My walk with God has been my primary building concern of my life. And I can tell you that I am exactly where God hoped I would be on this Father's Day in my walk with God. How different would our lives be if we were how different how cool would it be how this how um why don't you just preach the word open up like ephesians and start at verse one chapter one start reading and and exegeting the text building what we're supposed to build as men how cool would that moment be second thing you're to be building into your relationship with your wife and guys i'm just going to tell you and this is the mistake that you and i won't make is that so many men believe that what our wives want from us is providing their material needs. And can I tell you that at the end of the day, unless you married a gold digger, and I don't want to see a raise of hands, (laughs) she is much more concerned about your heart. And that your heart is forever pursuing her. There is something in the way that God wired her as a woman. And someday we will talk about this, but there's something about her that absolutely delights in the chase, delights in her man pursuing her and ultimately catching her over and over and over again. And see, what happens so often in manhood is that we go, well, wait a minute. Yeah, um, what passage says that again? Oh, yeah, not one. Wait a minute, I, I, I fooled her into marrying me. I mean, that job's done, right? I mean... And what we miss in the heart of our wives is that our wives love the chase. There's something about her man pursuing her heart that fills her emotional tank. And here's the cool part about it, guys. I already know you can do it. Here's how I know you can do it. You caught her once. 
You did that because you courted her, because you did everything in your power to chase her until you caught her heart. And instead of viewing your wife and courting her as a task, what if you and I saw it as an unbelievable privilege? What if, what if, what if, what is this? To fill her heart and a responsibility given by God. Men, when you go to your car and you get in and you start to leave for the day, what's the first thing you look at? Gas gauge. Some of you are going to go, my leather upholstery. It's pretty cool. <laughs> gas gauge. And here's what you check out. You say, hey, do I got enough gas? How, how close am I to empty? And if you find the gas gauge to empty, here's what I know you do. You immediately drive to the gas station. You fill the car back up. Hey, guys, I'm just going to When's the last time you checked your wife's emotional tank? And, and what would it mean that consistently to say, hey, I, that, that's, that's my... So my wife's a vehicle and I need to check her gas tank. Oh, yeah, she's going to love this analogy. I think that's, that's, what, that's what God has given me to build. And I am, I'm going to spend the next 12 months, I'm gonna, between now and the next 12, I, I'm going to simply be constantly checking my wife's emotional tank. And when I find it empty, I will immediately turn to fill it. You'd be a pretty amazing husband. You would be building exactly what God gave you to build. It'd be a cool day. For you as a man. Third thing. Yeah, it'd be a cool day. There you go. Yeah. Wouldn't that be a cool day? What if? Wouldn't that be a cool day? I'm. Wow. Yeah. Whoo. Huh. This is some kind of weird motivational speech with um, some pretty small carrots there at the end of the stick to motivate people. Don't you think? Not only am I to build my walk with God, not only am I to build my relationship with Jesus Christ, I am to invest and build into the lives of my children. Men. Guys, do not miss this. Far too many confused men, not the men of Cornerstone, all those guys out there, okay? Uh, Far too many confused men think that raising children is a woman's job. And if you believe that, you've missed the power of the hammer. You've missed the influence of a father. Missed the power of the hammer. Here we go again. And I'm going to tell you that there are lessons and there are measurements that will be placed and markers in the lives of your children that will always be a reference point to you. I guarantee you, children take their moral compass from their dads. As much as mom says, as much as mom tries to instill, it is the voice of the dad that ultimately has the loudest and strongest influence on the moral compass. Yeah, and I'm just going to tell you, how cool would it be? How cool would it be if the men of Cor- yeah, How cool would it be if you, like, actually opened up a biblical text and actually preached from it? Cornerstone said, look, here's the deal. Uh, we're not letting any magazines like that into our homes. Uh, we're we're going to put some safeguards on our computers. You're never going to see Dad looking at that. We're, we're not going to have premium channels on our TV because you and I know what premium channel means. You know, there's plenty of pagans out there who don't have premium channels. That doesn't mean that they're truly moral in the eyes of God. And we're not going to do that because here's the deal. I don't want my daughter to ever see her dad leering at women that way. I don't want my daughter to ever think for even a moment that the way to get the affection... Now, can can I ask the obvious question? Why? Why? Okay, now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not advocating immorality. But in the context of this sermon, 
Why shouldn't a guy look at a woman with lust in his heart? Hmm? What's wrong with it? Why would it be, quote, cool if, uh, you know, your daughter never saw you take a sideways glance at a woman? Why would that be cool? Huh? Notice who's not being mentioned. A holy and righteous God who will judge the living and the dead. It's just, oh, wouldn't it be cool if, you know, and, and these are just empty platitudes. But nowhere are we actually getting the real standard for biblical holiness. Nowhere are we even being taught true holiness. True Truly what God's will is regarding our minds and our bodies, regarding sexual sin, because that's what this falls under the category of, right? Sexual purity and sexual sin. God's not being mentioned. It's just, oh, wouldn't your life be so cool if... And no mention of the fact that when you transgress God's law, you... Stand guilty before a holy and just God who has every right to throw your carcass into the eternal fires of hell. No mention of that either. Just a casting of a grand vision. Wouldn't your life be really cool if... Why would it be cool? Why shouldn't I do these things? What's wrong with them? No mention of any of that. ...of a man or the attention of a man is to give herself to every 16-year-old male that will show her the time of day. I'm going to set a higher moral compass than that for my daughter. I don't want my son to see his dad Googling and ogling over women who are not his wife. And and, and here's the deal. Because I'm not going to send my son into the world to go put extra notches in his belt and leave a path of broken and wounded girls. Yeah, again, yes, those types of sins do leave a path of broken and wounded women as well as a broken and wounded man. But why does why does it break and wound people? And what about a broken and wounded God? What about an angry and just and wrathful God who visits and judges and punishes sin? And what about Christ? who was pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, who took the punishment of those sins upon himself and drank down to the dregs the full fury of the wine cup of the wrath of God. No mention of that either. In his wake. And I'm just going to say, men, the power that has been given to you to build into the lives of your children a moral compass is amazing. And what if you and I set our faces and just said, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm going to start living in front of my, example, my, my family with such a high-level example that I will absolutely challenge my kids to follow Jesus with the same amount of integrity and the same amount of passion and the same amount of holiness as their dad. That'd be a good day in our manhood. My walk with God, I'm to build. My relationship with my wife, I'm to build. The moral compass in the hearts of my children, I'm to build. And then finally, we're to build our church. You realize that why you and I are here is to make Jesus Christ famous. To take wounded people and heal them and take people who are far from God. How do you make Christ famous without actually preaching him? How, how is that accomplished? 
and introduce them to God. And, and, and guys, how cool would it be in our church if there came the day when the majority of leadership roles were filled by men? And we had to say to ladies, hey, we would love to have you serve here. But the truth is, so many men have volunteered and so many men have stepped up to this. There's no room for you right now. Yeah, this sermon gets weirder by the minute. How cool would that moment be? What if, what if you and I turned the hammer and said, look, giving my life to building another man's house, to building some corporation success isn't worthy of the gift of manhood that God has given me, and I will go to build my own home and my own relationship with God. That's the thing I will build for the next 12 months. We'd understand the hammer a whole lot better. We'd understand the hammer. Uh huh. That's nowhere mentioned in the Bible. So there's a second part. Not only were men built to build, not only did, is this how God wired us in our manhood, and, and not only would it be just an amazing thing if, if all of us set our faces and said, we're going to build the things that God has called us to build. But guys, I'm just going to tell you, there's some battles that you and I need to battle. That deep within the heart of man, God has set a switch. Something in us that just says, look, I can't take that lying down. I can't let that happen on my watch. And I've got to go battle for what's right. I've got to go stand for what needs to be stood for. I can't let that harm come upon those that I love. And God set within your heart the need to battle because you're a man. Matter of fact, grab- yeah, not because God's word says so anywhere. It's because you're a man. Okay. Grab your Bibles and go with me uh, over to the left. Matter of fact, just go to the front of your Bible. You're going to find the book of Genesis and then go to the right. And we're going to go to the second Samuel. Second Samuel. Chapter 23. Second Samuel chapter 23. Now here's the deal. We're, gonna, we're getting ready to read a list real quickly of... David's mighty men. So think about this for a moment. These are guys who put their lives behind David. They knew that Saul didn't need to be king. And so they've they've been willing to risk everything to follow David. They've been out doing battle. These guys are gnarled men. They've got the scars to prove it. And the list we're... And so now we're just going to go to a section of David's mighty men. Gnarled warrior types. And we're going to end off on that note. Oh, boy. We're about to read our three men who stood above all the rest of the men. These are David's mighty men, men who were men amongst men. And the reason they were is because when the time was needed, they chose to do battle for what needed to be battled. Ladies, if, if you're a single mom in the room today, And especially if you've been in a relationship with a man and he turned the wrong side of the hammer in and you've been wounded and you've been hurt by the battling side of a man because you've experienced what you should have never experienced. You're going to be tempted as you raise your son to not bring this part to the conversation. And here's the problem. That if you don't instill within the heart of a boy 
that a man is willing to fight for the things that need to be fought for, you'll raise a gentle coward. Because God has instilled within the heart of every man that there is a time and there is a moment to do battle. Here we go. We're going to read the names and, and the moments these men chose to do battle that distinguish them amongst all the rest of the men. Here we go. David's mighty men. It's Thanks for joining Samuel, us online today. Verse 8, here's what it says. These are the names of David's mighty men. Josheb Besheveth, a Tachemanite, the chief of the three. In other words, he's above all of them. This, this guy stood out even above his peers of the three. Is the purpose of this text to show us the true meaning of Christian manhood? No. Uh, he raised his spear against 800 men he killed in one encounter. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai, the Ahoite. As one of the three mighty men, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines, gathered at Pastamum for battle. Then the men of Israel retreated. But they stood his ground, and he struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to his sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar. In other words, after he wins the battle, then all the guys who ran away came back, only to strip the dead. Next to him was Shema, son of Agi the Herite. When the Philistines banded together to a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them, but Shema took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it, and he struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. So three guys who said, I get the moment, I understand what I need to do, and this is a moment when a man goes to battle. Okay? So here they are. Here are the three moments. Number one uh, is Josheb, and it says of Josheb, he stands and battles 800 by himself. Now, guys, I'm just going to ask, how crazy is that? This is somewhere in the... Yeah, no, um, that is not teaching that when you're, you're outnumbered 800 to 1, you go to battle. This is not a right understanding or handling of this text. ...realm of stupid, right? I mean, 800 to 1, you retreat tactically. You find a better time and a better moment to fight. You don't stand by yourself and fight. Unless... Unless you're a man who says... This moment is about doing the right thing. No, unless you're a man who lived in ancient Israel and understood the promises of God regarding putting the enemies to flight and how many could do it. There's biblical promises given to the nation of Israel and they're fulfilled in these men. This this moment is is about standing when others run. And, and and, And when it comes to doing that which is right... I'm not going to compromise my ethics. I'm not going to lie my way out of this. He's, Lynn Winters compromised his ethics long ago when he chose not to preach the word of God in context and not to rightly handle the biblical text. This is a form of immoral behavior. I'm not going to do whatever is easy. I'm going to do what needs to be done in this. I'm going to do the right thing in this moment, and I don't care what everybody else is doing. I'm simply going to stand with no excuses and do what's right. It's a man who says, look, here's the deal. My marriage isn't what my marriage probably ought to be. And I could, I could, I could sit here right now and I could say, look, if I stand up and I begin to really invest in my marriage, it would be a lot of help if my wife would, would join in with me. But I, I already know she won't. It'd be a lot of help if my kids would show me just a little bit of respect. But there, there's just no chance for that. 
And rather than offer the excuse, rather than say, you know, if they're not going to do what, what they ought to do, then, then, you know, I mean, why would I do what I'm going to do? This is a guy who says, no, 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 no. This isn't about anybody else. This isn't about what's easiest from here. This is about what ought to be done And I am simply going to be the husband I ought to be. I'm going to be the man of God that I ought to be. I'm going to be the father that I... Notice the example, the bad example that Lynn Winters is setting as as far as how to handle the biblical text. I ought to be without any excuses. I don't care if work is telling me they want more hours. I don't care. I'm simply going to do what's right because it's right. You'd be a man amongst men. The second guy, uh, it's Eleazar. So verse uh, 9. Uh, next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai the Ahai. As one of the three mighty men, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines, gathered at Pastamim for battle. Then the men of Israel retreated, but he stood his ground and he struck down the Philistines. Ready for this? Till his hand grew tired... And froze on his sword. So you get the moment. Everybody else gives up. Everybody else flees. This guy stands there battling away. Till finally he's so tired he can't lift his arm anymore. Uh, His friends have to come and peel it. And how is this uh, picture of biblical manhood again? This is an exploit done in faith his fingers because his, his, his hand is seized up in a cramp and it's around and they have to peel his fingers away from the sword. You get what, you get what this guy is standing. He says, look, here's the deal. I'm in and I'm not giving up. I, I, mean, no, no, I mean, here's the deal. I may not even see the results I want to see. I may not even see the success that I'm hoping. I'm just telling you, I'm not leaving my post. I am going to battle because that's what I've been called to do is battle. And I am not going to retreat. I'm not going to abandon my position. And you'll have to come and pry my fingers off my sword because I ain't giving up. And if we fail today, if the battle is lost today, it's not going to be because I didn't stand my post. A couple of years back and i got to be careful. I don't want to share any names in the story because some might recognize the names. But a couple of years back, uh, I ended up on a day when uh, there was somebody who was promoted uh, in leadership over the top of me. I really, from the very beginning, just thought it was an absolute mistake. And in fact, I called that person's supervisor, you know, when the decision was made. I just said, you know, I just got to say out loud, I don't understand that promotion. I, I'm not sure. And, and you know... It, it is, I just don't think that person has the capacity to do the job that you just assigned them. And the person I was talking to said, well, you know, duly noted, uh, but they are your leader now, and uh, they have that position. The decision's been made. And we hung up the phone. And, and I was left with a really tough moment in my life because every part of me wanted to say, this guy's going to fail. I mean, this guy, this guy doesn't even come close to having the abilities that he needs. Success is just, I, I, I can't even imagine success. So what do I do now? Do I retreat from the field? Do I, you know, stand and watch his demise? What, what do I do? And in that moment, I chose. I chose not because I wanted to. I chose not because my heart was excited about it. I chose because it's what a man does. 
to support my leader. I absolutely just I'm going to. So the obligatory seeker driven message here, a man supports his leader. That would be the vision casting pastor, the leader. You support your leader. That's an important message there. You want to be a man? You better support the leader. Don't you dare question him. I'm going to step up. I'm going to support this guy. I'm going to work my head off to try to make him successful. Because here's the deal. If he doesn't succeed, it's not going to be because I laid down my sword. It's not going to be because I didn't give it 110%. And guys, I'm, I'm just telling you. You know, Lynn, you're a pastor. You lay down your sword every single time you refuse to actually rightly preach the word of God. And you preach something else like this. You laid down your sword as a pastor a long time ago because the only offensive weapon we have as Christians is the word of God, which is referred to as the sword of truth. Men who are men amongst men, men who know how to battle when it's time to battle, simply say, look, battling isn't because I think it's going to be successful. Battling isn't because everybody else is joining in with me. Battling is because that's my assignment. That's what God has called me to to fight for my family and fight for my marriage and and to fight for my church. And that's just what I'm going to do. And I'm just going to tell you, you're going to have to pry my fingers off the sword. That's the only way you're going to get me to stop. And like I said, you laid down your sword a long time ago. Last guy, his name is Shama. It's in verse 11. Here's what it says. Next time, next to him was Shama, son of Agi, the Herorite, with the Philistines banded together at a place, there was a field full of lentils. Israel's troops fled from them. Isn't it interesting that in all three of these guys' stories, these men amongst men, their names were made as men when other men ran in fear and failed. And they chose to be men. Which just simply says, guys, you and I are not going to take our cues from our culture. We're going to take our cues from God. Yeah, that's weird. The entire seeker-driven movement is based upon taking their cues from culture, not the Word of God. Strange hearing this, isn't it? During the harvest, here we go. Uh, When the lentils troops fled from them, but Shama, verse 12, took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. Guys, here's the deal. At first you read this and go, you know what, what, feel the lentils, what's going on? Here's what you need to know. In this time, a tactic of warfare was when you went into a land and you began to take ground, you burn everything. Everything. Because what you can't accomplish with the sword, you can accomplish with starvation. So as you go and as you start to conquer a land, not only do you kill every male you can, you then burn everything so that everybody who's left starves to death. At the very least, it takes them decades to be able to recover economically and ever be able to come back and attack you. And, and here's, here's what Shema knows as he stands in that field. If I give this field up, the women and the children will suffer. And so he stands. He stands in the gap. He defends the defenseless. He steps up for the week and he says, not on my watch. You will not inflict any harm here as long as I'm here. Years ago, I, some of you know my story. My parents were divorced. I, I was living at my uncle's house. Uh, we'd mow lawns uh, all summer long. Uh, he was a commercial uh, landscaper and we'd mow lawns together. And he always had other guys on the crew. Uh, there was this one guy on the crew uh, named Randy. 
And I, the truth was, I kind of liked Randy, and I thought he was kind of a cool guy. He was about five years older than me. And so I did what every 13-year-old punky kid does. I started picking on Randy to get his attention. You know, that, that's what you do. And so uh, Randy finally decided one day he'd had enough of this bratty little kid. And so he took me out in the front yard at my uncle's house and started whooping the holy fire out of me. I mean, he was, he was going at it. It was interesting because at first my uncle watched. Uh, I think my uncle figured I deserved much of it. What actually is, is good parenting, by the way. And, uh, and so he watched as Randy kind of, you know, messed with me and, and beat me up a little bit. But there came a part where it kind of crossed the line. And uh, Uncle Marty said, oh, okay. Uh, that, that's, that's too far. The kid, the kid doesn't deserve that. And I remember my Uncle Marty stepping up, and he said to Randy, he said, uh, would you ever consider wrestling a man? And Randy goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My Uncle Marty turned that boy into a pretzel. Ah, it was painful and grueling and wonderful all at the same time. It was so great to watch. And here's what I'm going to tell you. I cannot tell you how much pride I had as a 13-year-old young man knowing that when I needed to be defended, my uncle would defend me. And man, I just can't even tell you what it would do to the hearts of your family if they knew. Wouldn't it be cool if the time was needed? You'd stand in the field and you'd go to battle for them. That you'd be able to say to those God has trusted to your care, no harm will come to you through me and surely never from me. Guys, there's times when men have to do battle because that's what God called us to. And yet the weapons of our warfare are designed to tear down strongholds and we don't, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God to tear down strongholds, and yet he's not doing that with God's word. Weird, huh? Here, here's what I was just thinking today. All of you guys, I hope, think most of you guys, when you came in, we gave you a hammer. Yeah, they gave him hammers there, the hammer of Thor. How cool would it be today if the men of Cornerstone... How cool would it be? All made sure their hammer was pointing in the right direction. That you and I were building the things that God has assigned us to build, and we were battling the things that God assigned us to battle. Our homes would be blessed, our church would be blessed, and maybe more, our Savior would be blessed. If we were living... How? How would Christ be blessed by people turning the hammer of Thor in the right direction? Fully in our manhood. And so here's what I'm just going to do. I'm just going to give us a moment to bow our heads right now. I just want us to take a moment in prayer. I'm going to ask young girls to pray. Okay. No, Lynn, you don't get to pray. Sorry. I don't know which deity you're going to be praying to. Thor, Jesus, Odin, which one? What a mess. Yeah. Shallow, vapid, um, weightless, superficial, not shaped by Scripture, this wasn't a Christian sermon at all. It was mixing pagan ideas and drawing applications from them to define what biblical manhood is. And we got more Thor than we got of actual biblical passages regarding manhood. <sighs> Unbelievable. That's indicative of the wretched state that the so-called Christian church 
exists in today. Flat out rebellion and apostasy. Twisting God's word and completely oblivious and blind to what it really says. And who gets lost in all this? Christ does. And his saving work for me and for you. Yeah, that's who gets lost. And as a result of it, sinners are not brought to penitent faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, but faith in their own ability to apply a metaphor from the life of Thor to achieve so-called manhood. Absolutely sad. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ as vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.